This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Richard Bartlett. Richard holds a doctorate in chiropractic and naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University. Early in his career as a chiropractor, he experienced a life-changing event which redirected the entire course of his clinical experience. He's the author of the groundbreaking program, Which Sounds True, The Matrix Energetics Experience, Shift Your Consciousness, with the healing energies and hidden frequencies of the universe. In the Matrix Energetics experience, Richard takes students on a freewheeling, playful, and possibility-expanding journey that shatters preconceptions about the seemingly solid universe we live in and how unlimited our potential to change truly is. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Richard and I spoke about the field of the heart and torsion field physics. We also talked about the role of intention in matrix energetics. Richard also introduced us to a core method of matrix energetics. He calls it a form of training wheels. It's a methodology called the two-point. And he also showed us in a very specific example how we can use the two-point in our lives. Finally, we talked about how it's through play that we eventually discover our unlimited potential. Here's my very intriguing conversation with Dr. Richard Bartlett. Richard, I'd love to know about your discovery of matrix energetics. My understanding is that we go back in time to something like 1996. You're working as a chiropractor and some type of breakthrough experience happens, something like that. Well, I was going to school as a nature, learning to be a naturopathic physician after working as a chiropractor for about 12 years. So I was taking 37 credit hours a semester plus labs. And then I had to actually drive to Montana once, um, once a weekend, um, which was a 13-hour drive one way, in order to work as a chiropractor there because I didn't have a license. So I was kind of on a Sufi uh, quest for enlightenment or sort of like Charles Lindbergh going across uh, the Atlantic. Um, I was out of my body a lot. I was totally stressed, overwhelmed, uh, drinking a lot of coffee because you don't want to wind up in a ditch in the road somewhere in in Montana on the way, you know, uh, to your job. And then I would work all day for, for two days, and then I would get back in the car, come back to Seattle, and take a test. So that's the, um, that's the terrain that this thing happened in. I don't know exactly to this day what happened, but I will tell you, um, like it says in my first book, I had a young mother bring her child in, last patient of the day on a long Saturday, and um, she had a lazy eye. And she asked me, she told me that the surgeons uh, said, there's nothing we can do for it. We're just going to watch it and see if it gets better. And she told me that wasn't good enough for her and asked me if I could do something. And I was so out of it. um, I went off rambling into a story about Superman in the 50s, you know, George Reeves, that Superman. And it was a story about a blind girl. And I think my subconscious was making connections uh, while I was telling the story, because there was no apparent reason for me uh, rambling on about it. And then uh, I finished the story, which ends with the little girl getting her eyesight back, 
flying around the world with Superman, Superman getting her parents back together, and then meeting in the New York apartment. It's a very beautiful little 28-minute story. And uh, the mother was looking at me like, well, they know I'm crazy there in Seattle, but they, or in Washington, but um, she was looking at me like, why are you telling me this? And then all of a sudden I looked to my left, and behind me there was George Reeves as Superman or something that looked a lot like him standing there with his x-ray vision beaming into the little girl that was our concern. And I saw a blockage in the little girl's head, um, just kind of like a black, I don't know what. Um, and because I could see it, um, I knew what I needed to do. I needed to relieve that blockage. Now, I had a problem. Um, little children bite. And there are some, quote, cranial techniques that you can do where you stick your finger into the roots of the mouth of a, of a person and you can move the cranial bones from the inside. And that could have relieved the blockage. But I know from experience with my son, because I tried that on him, that he bit me like a snapping turtle, and I was not in the mood to repeat that experience ever. So that's probably why I went with the vision, or maybe even why I saw the vision, because there wasn't anything else. And uh, because I saw this blockage, I thought, I'm just going to go with the big guy in blue. And I touched on the forehead of the child some flash of light appeared to occur to my inner sight. Um, there were pathways in her nervous system that I could see where the light traveled down to the base of her skull, where her vision center is, the occipital lobe, and then it bounced back up. And in the next moment, um, she was blinking at me and she told me, there's two of you. Well, we see with binocular vision, and then what happens is as we get adapted to that, our nervous system superimposes the two images to make a stereoscopic image, which gives us our perception of depth. Well, for the first time in her life, that eye was functioning normally, so she was temporarily seeing double because she had not yet learned to superimpose the two images. Um, that was the beginning of what now is called matrix energetics, and quite a bizarre beginning it is. Now, help me understand a little bit what happened when you touched her from the outside so you wouldn't get bitten. What was going on then? <laughs> I just touched her with one finger on the forehead, and I just watched, literally watched, as this light appeared to be directed through her forehead, break up the blockage, shoot down into the occipital lobe, bounce back, and then it was coming out. I could see her eyes sparkling. And um, that was the long and short of it. I didn't really do anything. Okay. Now, you call Matrix Energetics a technology of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So help me understand, perhaps by unpacking this term, I'll get a little more insight into what's sure. actually going on here. Well, the problem with techniques is techniques are based upon some person's experience. And then from that experience, they subscribe a set of rule sets in order to recreate the experience. So as long as, it's like you're in a laboratory and you're mixing um, um, a couple of inorganic compounds in order to yield another con compound or a substrate. You have to put in so much of the one, so much of the other, heat it just right, uh, heat it for, for so long under this temperature, and then you filter it, so on and so forth. So those would be the rule sets that are, that are inherent with any technique. Every technique has a set of rules. The set of rules create a perceptual bias that puts you in the box of the person who had the original experience. Now, what I think is I think that those rules merely allow you to tap in, like you're plugging into an electric cord into an appliance. You're plugging into a morphic field, what Rupert Sheldrake calls a morphic field, which is a field of consciousness that is specified to the rule sets, the, the learning, the experiences, and, and the uh, understanding that is packed into that particular field of energy that is unique to the technique. So I think all techniques are actually morphic fields. And if you can create a, a morphic field that says the rules are actually that there aren't any, that's a different rule set, which changes the perceptual bias and allows you to go beyond your experience of a rigid expectation set so that miracles can then occur within the spaces between your expectations. 
So when you call matrix energetics a technology, you're distinguishing it from techniques? Absolutely. A technique will not get you to miracles. It will get you to process. You can do step one or step two or maybe reverse step one and two. You better not if you have a very uh, um, arrogant uh, teacher or someone that, that really believes it must be done his way or the highway. I've had a number of those. Um, in order to get to point B, you have to go through point A. Once you go to point B, your outcome is point C, just like this chemical formula that I talked about where you mix this compound with this substance and what it yields is this compound uh, or substrate. Um, that's not the way matrix energetics works. It doesn't work by intent. It does not work by running energy. It does not work by any of the traditional rules. It actually does not even work in the realm of classical physics. It works somewhat in the realm of quantum physics uh, as a field effect, but it probably even transcends that based upon the kinds of effects we see. It probably actually works in the realm of something called torsion field physics, which the Russians are the masters of. It was also the same physics that Tesla discovered um, and called longitudinal acoustic standing waves. Basically, it is a way of tapping into infinite potential through the zero-point field um, that then releases energy into this domain, but it is actually not the running of energy, the visualization of energy, the creation of an outcome by doing a specific thing. It's quite opposite of that. It actually is about getting into the field of your heart, which is gigantic. It's like 5,000 times stronger electromagnetically than the field of your brain getting into the field of your heart, entering an altered state of consciousness, hence the consciousness in the technology, and then getting out of the way. And this is pretty much the prescription for miracles in everything I've ever read. Okay, you're saying a lot of things here, Richard. I'm going to try to follow you here. I'm very interested sure. in this idea of the field of the heart. So tell me yeah. what we know about the field of the heart, especially in relationship to what you call torsion physics. Torsion field physics, yes. Well, okay. First, let's just use, let's, let's unpack the word torsion. Torsion is just a spin or a twist. If you think of a tornado or a hurricane, that's a torsion field. You've got um, this intense spinning energy, and then at its center, you've got a null point where there is a, um, there's actually a change in the way the laws of physics behave. For instance, uh, if you've ever seen pictures or heard about a straw being driven through a tree, it's now thought by some scientists who have studied this form of physics that actually the straw is not driven into the tree by the force of the wind. It actually is dematerialized and manifests within the tree intact. Now, this is very interesting because it ties into some forbidden archaeology where we've actually found frogs and things like that, alive, embedded in granite hundreds of feet down, and we've opened it up. Now, they haven't lived for very long, but the only way they could have actually gotten there is to have been teleported there. And the physics of teleportation, we talk about it a little bit in quantum, quantum physics, but the Russians are actually working on mastering that. You're basically giving me up, Scotty. Um, that allows for you to exist outside of the normal confines of time and space. Now, if you exist outside of those normal confines, you also exist outside of the laws of classical conventional physics. The heart itself is a torsion field. It's a spinning field. This has been proven. It's been seen by NASA researchers and others. Um, the first thing that forms in the embryo is actually a pulse, which is at 72 beats a minute, and that pulse is driven by what they can clearly see, a whirling vortex that then becomes the physical heart later on in the development of the embryo. I have to say, when you started talking about the teleporting frogs, I got a little, <laughs> I went off a little bit there. Now, what are you saying? Frogs teleported into granite? I'm sorry, Richard, help me. Yeah, they were found They were found alive inside of granite, sometimes hundreds of feet down. They've also been found, well, other things other than frogs, but frogs are the thing I particularly am remembering right now. 
They've been found inside of trees, embedded in trees, uh, petrified trees for that, and they were alive. Again, this, this breaks all the rules of our conventional expectations. But if you get outside of the confines of the normal play of time and space, these things make sense. It's only when you resume your relationship with what you would call the classical realm of physics, time and space, that's where the rules have to apply uh, uniquely to the way they've been set up. Now, I will tell you, if one person can levitate, if one person in the world can truly levitate, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, evidence uh, to suggest some of the saints, so on, the Tibetan masters, they can do these things for real, not as a trick, then you've got a different set of laws of physics working that transcend what we would normally believe to be the rule set that we work within. Now, the thing about that is, what's important about that, and frogs are not so important here, but the idea is, is that if you can get into the field of the heart, which is a torsion field, which by its very nature transcends the laws of normal time space, you now have an interval of infinity. And that infinity in between, the, what George Lucas called the space between the spaces, that interval is where you contact uh, infinite possibility. That's where you can uncollapse the experience of a physical condition, a pattern, a disease, uh, an event, and experience it differently because the laws are completely different at that level. Now, you, you mentioned the word miracles, and you know, mm-hmm. I noticed that I have a kind of like a double-sided response when I hear that word. On the one hand, mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. I, I want to know what you mean. I want to know the kinds of miracles you've seen and that you've seen through right. Matrix Energetics. You laughed, so I mean, that, probably we don't have enough time to hear about all the miracles, but I could hear a couple. <laughs> but at the same yeah. time, some part of me is also suspicious and concerned yeah. that people who actually really need miracle healing who have been praying and asking for it and not receiving it, might just be like, what are you talking about, Tammy? You and Richard are talking about miracles. What is this? The reason that people, I believe, the reason that people do not experience miracles is because they need them. If you need a miracle, what happens is you're focusing on lack. You're focusing on on what's not happening. You're saying, is it different yet? Are we there yet, Mommy? You know, like if you, if you get in your car with your kids and you're going to go on a long drive and you're, say, in a suburban, I've had this experience, and you pull out the drive and already the kids are yelling, are we there yet? And you've got 27 hours to go. You understand what I'm talking about. It's the anticipation, the expectation, the need for miracles that precludes them from occurring because the way we perceive miracles is we perceive them as something that happens to us, that changes us in order that we can get rid of our problems or transcend our suffering. Once you embrace suffering, embrace your problems, let go of your need to change anything, you can then be neutral. And when you're neutral, there's no charge upon an experience. Therefore, one experience is equally weighted with another experience. Once there's no charge on an outcome, the outcome can actually change. But in order to get to the point of no charge, you have to stop thinking. Now, I'm not talking about meditating. I'm talking about letting go so that your thoughts can run on, do whatever they want, go on forever, if you like, build castles in the sand or fortresses or or, um, places of protection. And you go to the point in your heart where there are no thoughts, there are no feelings, there are no emotions, and there are no rules. And from that point, you touch infinity. Literally in the blink of an eye, your entire life can change. And I've seen it over and over again, not only through myself, which I don't consider to be particularly good at this, but through the people that have attended one seminar or even not attended the seminar, just read a book. They have had what I would call miracles, what they call miracles, because they transcend the normal expectation set of what has to happen in order for something to occur. In other words, if you cut your hand, and if it were to heal instantly, that breaks the laws of healing takes time. Well, time itself, um, somewhat, our concept of time, dictates how things play out. When you get to a point of timelessness and spacelessness, you actually have arrived at a point of your being, the fiery point of your essence, 
that transcends all those rule sets. Now, the question becomes, are you pretending to let go but still looking for an outcome, or do you truly let go and then the outcome occurs? It's like when the saints would levitate, and I do believe they did, they levitated because they got so deeply in prayer or in meditation or in supplication or in joy, whatever you want to call it, um, that they entered into the chamber of their heart, the sacred field of their heart, and from that point they transcended gravity, they transcended time space, they transcended the rules. Padre Pio is a very good example who was seen uh, in World War II. There was a um, there was a bomber group that was going to bomb uh, railroad tracks and, and a munitions plant. And um, Padre Pio was serving Sunday Mass, and all of a sudden, the the pilot of the lead of the B-17 bombers saw Padre Pio floating in the air above him with his hand outstretched, saying, go back. The reason Padre Pio was there, he said, you're too close to the town, you're going to hurt innocent people. So the pilot, very reverentially, uh, turned the bomber squadron back away from uh, where they might have bombed, you know, innocent lives. And he landed, and when he landed, he went to church. And when he went to church, there was Padre Pio serving Mass in the little little uh, villa there. So that's just one example of transcending time and space, being in two places at once, what you might call a miracle, certainly not your expectations set, outside of the rules, outside of your perceptual biases, and things occur really in spite of you. That's what I think miracles are. They, they don't occur because of you, because of what you pray, because of what you do, because of what you believe, because of what you want, because of what you wish you could have or you try to get rid of. They occur in spite of you, and they are grace. And that grace, I think, actually dwells within the sphere of, of the, or the realm of the heart. Now, one of the things that's confusing to me about matrix energetics is the role just of... Just one. Just one. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a long list, but we'll start here, which is the role of intention. And I say that because as you're talking, it sounds like there is no real place for intention. I'm moving beyond anything I might want to get out of working with this technology. And yet it also seems like there is a role for intention. So help me understand this. You're right. It's very paradoxical. And the reason this is, is because it's a left brain, right brain equation. You see, the left brain, it, it functions in time and space, in the domain of time and space. Now, I will say, I'll be a little more mm, prickly. I'll say, I don't think it functions in time and space. I think the left brain experience of our perceptions creates our um, experience of time and space. Now, collectively, we create it together. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's that if you have millions and millions of people, trillions, I guess, uh, or billions certainly, creating an experience together collectively of a thing called time and space, we are going to experience it. Uh, and we're not going to be able to tell the difference. And, for instance, if we throw ourselves off the building, we're not going to levitate, we're going to fall. Uh, we're not going to walk through walls or any of these things because those are outside of the normal expectation set of our perceptual bias. This is why um, people like Carlos Castaneda with his guru Don Juan, it's why they took mushrooms or why the uh, Tibetan monks, they go meditate in caves and they deny the world or whatever, because they have to get outside of the limiting field or, or vortex of our own expectations for how things happen, what is real, what is not real, what is allowed and what is not. Most of what is allowed and what is not is not based upon what actually is, but the way we perceive it to be. Everyone's perceptions are different, so each person has a different angle on what reality is. They have a different take on what's real, what's not real, what's possible, what they can do, what they can expect, what's outside of their dreams and expectations, and what could be included. So this means what you've got, essentially, is you've got a many, many infinite subsets of possibilities that are embodied by these fields of energy. Think of these fields as intelligent equations that run mindlessly based upon what's been programmed into them. That's essentially what you're talking about. Um, in order to transcend the limitation of your expectations, 
You can't do it by intending to do it. If you intend to do something or you visualize something or you try and make something happen, it is your left brain that is the doer. You are not the doer. You are the door. And the door leads to this infinite field through the doorway of your heart. The door actually is the field of the heart. The field of the heart, I believe, has nothing to do with love. It has nothing to do with emotions. It has nothing to do with your thoughts. It is actually a null point, like in the center of the tornado, where things can occur because the laws of time and space, of conventional physics, and even of the mind, the emotions, the expectations are suspended there. If you were to go there, you would feel nothing, hear nothing, see nothing, be able to perceive nothing from your left brain. Now, that said, the left brain is a linear processor. So what it does is it puts together our experiences. I don't remember how fast, extremely fast, but basically frame by frame, there's mm, a limit of 28 bits per second. They used to say 7 to 12, we're up to 28 now. That creates the linear experience based upon our perceptual bias of what we perceive to be out there as our reality, as our physical three-dimensional reality. What physicists say, and I have some friends that say this, that are world-class physicists, they say there is no out there, out there. What's actually out there is fields of information that then create interference patterns, kind of like if you saw... um, I can't remember the name of them. It was Sean Connery and uh, Catherine Cita Jones, entrapment, where she's in a field of lasers and she has to flip her body and she has to move certain ways to get around that field. Well, if you could imagine each one of those squares where the lasers are as a particular slice of reality or particular field or, or perception, and you move through those, you have to get to the other side some way. Now, this is why, again, meditation, drugs, uh, there are various ways. But if you enter an altered state of consciousness, your left brain can't function effectively there or not as effectively. What happens is your right brain, which can process hmm, probably a trillion bits of information per second. Maybe it's limitless, but we'll say a trillion. Uh, Scientists have said a million, but I, I smell a rat. If you say the right brain can, you've measured the right brain process a million bits of information a second, what grad student did that research that confirmed it was a million bits? They're making it up. So if they're going to make it up, let's make it up really good. Let's say a trillion bits of information. The problem is you would not perceive being able to process that trillion bits of information from your normal waking state because the laws of the left brain would slow you down to a linear expectation set that says, This occurs first, cause and effect, and then this. That's why there's only a forward direction in time. It moves from the present to the future. It never moves to the past. That's why you can't experience parallel universes or parallel realities. That's why you can't grow a tail or whatever. The rules are different in this realm, and we all agree to those differences and agree to play by those rules, even if only subconsciously. When you, however, alter your consciousness enough, you actually move out of the left brain linear logic, and this creates the amorphous right brain experience, which is more based upon sensation, color, symbol, uh, feeling states, not feelings. Those are, those are left brain things. Feeling states, like it feels warm or soft or whatever. They don't have boundaries. They don't have angles. They don't have dimensions. That's why the right brain, when you get there and you go into meditation, if you go deep enough, you actually experience dissolving yourself. You don't exist because that which thinks it exists is still the left brain. Your thoughts are not you. Your feelings are not you. The only thing that really is you is this experience at the center of your heart, which is the eye and the vortex of the hurricane, which is one with all creation because it's uncreated at that point. It's potential. The zero-point field is called the zero-point field in in physics because there's nothing there. You see, what it is, it's an infinite field of potential. And what the scientists say about it is there are ghosts or virtual particles that are continually springing into being. 
but then they are annihilated as quick as they come into being because there's positive and negative charges and the two cancel each other out, or there's matter and antimatter, if you want to say that. So nothing really sticks, if you will, in that realm. However, if you can take what Jesus said, and I, and I don't know if it was Jesus, but you take the idea or the intent, a tiny, tiny, tiny intent, smaller than the grain of a mustard seed, you drop that into that field from the field of your heart, that's your communion point with the zero-point field, what happens is it forms a little irritation in the field, then it creates a little eddy pool, like a, a tornado, and then there's another vortex that's magnetized to that, and then what you get, and this is, this is the science of this, you get charged clusters. So instead of having these virtual particles um, coming into being and then dissipating, they actually become stable within a geometry that's defined by this field of energy that you've created with that little tiny seed of intent. Over, I wouldn't say even the passage of time, what happens is it reaches a certain potential, what you call a kindling strength. It will then pop into manifestation where it could be observed, probably just at the quantum level, unless you're uh, very practiced at letting go of your distortions concerning what time and space exists, what its existence is. The quantum physicists, they got really weird. Like, I know some, some guys, they wear really big shoes, some of them, like size 13 shoes for 10, size 10 feet because they don't want to fall to the cracks in the universe. So that's a pretty altered state of consciousness. But they're altered from actually dealing with this alternate perception of reality, which is based upon verifiable science. It just cannot be experienced by the left brain because the rules for how we observe are conscious rules. We see what we see. We see what we expect to see. We experience what we know we can. And that's why we don't see miracles even if we pray for them or desire them or attempt to wheedle God for them, what we, what we see is we see problems, because our left brain, linear logic, it has problems, it looks for solutions. That's what it does. It's a machine. Once you transcend the problem-solution set so that you're all right with either one, you neutralize the charge upon that dynamic. Call it yin-yang, call it good, evil, call it whatever you want. But you neutralize that, you drop into your heart, which is massless, chargeless, spaceless, dimensionless, you actually merge into that pool of oneness. And from that pool, again, you can drop the tiniest seed of intent and see miracles. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Richard, Right here, in this moment, I want to drop into the field of the heart, and I want your help here. Okay. Is this sort of a geographic zone in my body? When we say the field of the heart, I imagine I'm going to my chest. So is that the correct motion? Well, going to your chest, yes, it is correct, and what you want to do is go inside of your chest. But it's a funny thing because... When you go inside, imagine a funnel that then collapses in on itself. So it goes from uh, a certain definable size to indefinable, and then it's like it comes out on the other side, like you're going through a wormhole into infiniteness. Now, the key, the, the trick is really simple, and I found this out. You don't need to meditate for years and years. All you have to do is ask an open-ended question. I learned this from Star Trek. Uh, James Kirk defeated the machine that was going to destroy the earth uh, or destroy the heavens by just asking open-ended questions that a computer can't answer. If you ask an open-ended question without a charge, without an expectation or a need for a response, your right brain actually 
goes on a search for the perceptions that match that answer. Your left brain can't answer it because it's not a closed yes or no response, which is all it knows. So here's what you do. Ask this question, where am I in relation to the field of my heart now? I'll give you some more direction about this. When you ask that question, first thing, what Jesus said, or what somebody that might have been Jesus said, said, seek and you shall find, uh, ask and you shall receive. There is a trust element here that if you ask, you will receive an answer. The question becomes, do you have an altered enough perceptual state to perceive the answer when it occurs? So here's how you do it. Have you ever been uh, walking down the street and seen something out of the corner of your eye? I'm sure you have. Sure, yeah. Yeah, okay. So your right brain functions that way. What it does is you perceive far more, far, far more than you're ever allowed to actually notice. So if you suspend the rules for how you normally notice, what we call notice what you notice, notice what's different, not what's the same, you now have created an open rule set that says whatever I perceive, I accept as useful. Now, when you ask, I want you to pretend most people, they think they have trouble getting into their heart because they tell me they're too left-brained. What I found out of hundreds and hundreds of seminars, they're not too left-brained. What we do when we're looking for information, we actually go outside of our bodies, our awareness, in order to find where that information resides. So <laughs> here's what you do. Ask, where am I in, the, in relation to the field of my heart? And then pretend you're looking up in the sky or just look up in the sky like you're looking for a kite that's somewhere up there in the wind, maybe floating in the clouds. You're going to find that there's a part of you that's somewhere out there. Now, it's like watching a ping pong match. If you watch a ping pong match going back and forth, you can only catch the movement out of the side of your eyes. It goes too fast for you to directly look at it. Same thing here. By asking an open-ended question, seeking, believing you will get a response, you will get a sense of where your awareness is in relation to the field of your heart. Once you do that, all you need to do is to ask that part to come into the center of your chest. Like you could imagine mm, shooting a grappling hook, for instance, out into the sky where you perceive yourself to be, latch onto that, and then reel it into the center of your chest. That's really all there is to that. Now, the thing is, is when you're not paying attention, as soon as you lose your lock, if you will, on that state, it will float back out. You'll either find yourself where you think you live, which is up in your head, or you'll find yourself literally out of your body, the portion of you that thinks. It, it will be out, again, looking for the information. Uh, every time you have a thought, you actually have to seek where that information is and then find that and walk into it. Most of the information is not in our heads. It's out in the fields of, of the morphic fields of consciousness. You can literally learn to read all knowledge if you could read these morphic fields. You could talk the Akashic records. So it takes practice, uh, but it is very easy to do. Literally, we have hundreds of people every seminar that learn how to do this and learn how to do it very quickly. Once you do that, Tammy, what you're going to feel is it feels like you're both more in your body, but also more expanded at the same time. It's a very strange sensation. Um, it helps maybe initially to close your eyes. Uh, close your eyes, direct your awareness into the center of your chest, and what you'll find is your awareness tends to float elsewhere. You can't force this to occur. This will not work. That's your left brain trying to make something happen. You let go so that it does occur. It's a natural state. That's right. And when you do that, once you're there, you're going to sense like you've become spherical in your awareness, like if you could almost see behind you without looking. You can also, you, often people feel much taller as well, like they've gotten very, very tall and very expanded. At this point, many people either will go 
actually physically unconscious, as you've seen um, <laughs> personal, personally, um, or they will experience joy for no apparent reason. In other words, they could be in pain, they could have cancer, they could be, their life could be a mess, they could have trouble with their finances, trouble with their whole life, and all of a sudden they would find themselves laughing, not because something's funny, but because there is such a release of joy that, and they don't know why it's there. And once they contact that and learn to sustain that, that's where you really are starting to weave that personal field that responds to that little tiny seed of intent that creates the miracles that become more and more apparent the more you do this exercise. Well, I actually think a miracle might be happening in our conversation, Richard, which is this. <laughs> you know, I think when I try to understand you and your work using, I think, what you would call my left brain, you know, it just mm -hmm. bounces off. Nothing really happens. And if anything, sure. I, I get a little frustrated and I think either he's talking too fast or I'm not smart enough or something. It's just sort of like it bounces off. Nothing happens. But in listening yeah. to you for, you know, the last 15 minutes and just having the experience of dropping into this center of the heart field, I actually feel both, I feel connected to what you're saying. And as you said, this spherical sense of being and joy, there's a relaxation in me. And I wonder if even to appreciate matrix energetics, one needs to approach the whole thing differently than we usually approach most everything else we try to learn in our life. That's why we call it a conscious techno consciousness technology. Um, we deliberately do not teach techniques in the seminar because if you teach a technique, your left brain will latch onto that and think it's got it. It'll learn to mimic like a chimpanzee going through the steps and you just be able to get some very good results, but you will not get the experience that's at the core of matrix energetics, which is that heart technology that I did not invent, but I discovered how over many years to access this to get out of the way so that the miracles, the changes in consciousness, the changes in people's lives and the quality of their experience becomes much more observable and reliable. And it has taken me as a scientist, essentially, to ask that open-ended question over and over again and looking for the response. And then I've learned it uh, from being literally in seminars, teaching and watching people and then guiding them and then having them notice what they found. And then they can then access the state and they know they've got it. And we have such a success rate at this point in the seminar, I would say at least 98% of everybody attending gets this, gets to this state, understands it, and produce results. Now, there is something, I mean, you may not want to represent it as a technique, but this idea of mm -hmm. something that you call the two-point, and that mm -hmm. this is a basic approach that you teach people. Can you describe how doing the two-point relates to this falling into the center of the heart? It doesn't relate at all. And in fact, what I've realized over the years is the two points kind of a trick. What it does is it allows your left brain to focus on something it can understand, observe, and measure while the right brain integrates with the heart and performs the actual magic. The two point, what it does is it gives you a way, if you want to call yourself a scientist or a skeptic, it gives you a way to perceive the way something feels or what it is or how you experience it to drop into the field of your heart, do what we call uncollapse the wave function, and then come back and remeasure and re-experience it as different. What this does over time is it builds a bridge between the left and right brain so that the two start to handshake across the center, and you start to merge your consciousness so that your left brain cooperates with your right, and you, your right brain actually starts to be available to the perceptions of your left brain. In other words, you are fundamentally changed in your consciousness. And I've heard this from many, many people. Uh, I have people tell me all the time their lives were never the same after that seminar because they realized, A, they were far more than their body, B, they were not their thoughts or their emotions, and C, they didn't need to actually do anything in order to achieve magnificent results 
All they needed to do was step into that point in their heart and trust, and things would happen. And they could trust that, and they could go with the flow, and they felt like their lives were set free. And I think that that, that is not anything you could describe as a technique. But there is a methodology, which is different. So describe the two-point methodology to me. I want to learn to do well, the two-point. Well, it's point. really simple. Um, in the initial time, see, in the initial, when I first learned this, I was a chiropractor, and I'm very good at feeling things on bodies. So I would feel a point that felt stuck hard and rigid, you know, something that wasn't moving in the spine or somewhere in the body, and I would touch that. And it just feels yuck. You know, it's like if you, if you touch something, they feel nice, like the petals of a rose or something. You touch something else, and you just don't want to touch it. So there's that feeling. There's distress there somewhere. Then what I originally did is I looked for a point that caused that distress to feel like a magnet, like there were two places that matched. What happened then is when I would drop out, and at the time I didn't have the technology of the heart, when I would drop out of noticing, those two points would collapse together or merge. And when they did, the pattern underneath that you were measuring was fundamentally different. That's really as simply as I can put it. But the real deal is, is there is no point to the two-point. And we tell people this in the seminar, after you learn how to do this, you can let go of the training wheels, which is what the two-point is. And, the, and that's why people, this is why I don't like people trying to teach this, because they don't know what they're talking about. The two-point is a way to get away from the idea of the technique or methodology to become that. Once you become something, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm comfortable, Richard, with getting some training wheels at this moment. I feel, you know. Oh, yeah. Training wheels are great, and we give it to everybody. Right. So can you offer those training? Just I want to make sure I understand. Let's say sure. right, right now I want to do a two-point on myself. I'll just use a, a genuine example because I have a headache. How would I do it? Okay, great. All right. So you know you have the headache. Where in your head is the headache? What part of your head? Is it your whole head or is it just part of it? Yeah, just part of my head, back of the head. Okay, great. So without even touching, because you can do this without touching, without touching, I want you to find the center of that headache. Find the point that's the center of that headache. Okay. Okay? Now, what you want to do is find a second point, and it really doesn't matter where. Find a second point. You're creating a vector into that pattern. So say it's your shoulder. It could be a point in the air. I don't care. But wherever it is, this is important, feel a connection with that, with that other point. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, hold that. Now drop into your heart, and what you're going to do is expand up and out so that you let go. When you do this, you've entered into that interval between time and space, and it does not take long. Yeah, that feels better. I can feel what you did. There's more circulation rushing into the head area. There's more flow in that area. I don't know if your experience has changed or not, but my sense of what you experienced was you did very yeah. well with that. Yeah, so you could do this two-point, picking any area, find the center of pain, pick another point that's not in pain, and then feel the way they connect. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason this works, Tammy, what I originally thought, what I, what I originally thought it was, is I thought it was based on quantum physics. Let me just break it down. I'll try to. Um, all right, you're, you have a body. Your body is made of uh, systems that we arbitrarily have delineated, brain, nervous system, blah, blah, blah. Then you've got organs that are components of those systems. Those organs are made of specialized organic tissues. The tissues are made of molecules. The molecules are made of atoms, and here's where it gets dicey, because the atoms don't exist. The atoms have been found not to have an actual orbit, but to have a probability orbit. And when looked at under an electron microscope, an atom actually appears to be a tiny speck of dust, if you want to call it that, as the nucleus, and then this immense cloud, like an electron cloud, around the center and what scientists believe is that's all the possible positions that electron could be in before what's called the collapse of the wave function, before we observe it and cause it to appear where we expect it to be. So it actually takes, the shortest distances between two points is a line. So 
So in order to collapse the wave function, the act of observing or measuring is what is required. This is where the two-point came from. I was reading physics, and I thought, I'll take my training, find two points, move into this dimensionless quantum realm, quantum foam, if you like, and then I will release the measurement, let go, because it's drop down, place intent, and let go is what we tell people. I will let go, and that will collapse it into a new possible outcome. Now, if you have a very mild intent for it to change, let's say your headache, if you would like it to change, but you're not trying to make it change, a soft intent is enough to create that little nucleus where a new pattern can form around. If it's too hard, what it does is it collapses it into the experience of what you're observing. In other words, you'll get no change because you're looking so much for a change that you'll miss the state that allows for the change, just like what you felt. If you drop into your heart, you'll feel the expansion, and you'll also feel bigger often or otherworldly, plus more grounded, if you want to use that terrible word. Um, I call it terrible because I, it, it has a lot of um, suppositions based around techniques and methodologies. But you'll feel more present, I'll just say that. And yet you'll also feel more expanded. So your potential has expanded. You've softened your awareness of the physical body. You've included non-physical aspects. That's where the magic is. As I've explained, at your core, you don't exist because the atoms themselves are actually possibly there or probably there, but only when you observe them to be so. This is why when you enter an altered state, you're playing with, this is going to get a little dicey, you play with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. At the quantum level, here's the way it works. You've got a particle, call it an electron. It's got a position. It's got a defined place in space that you could find it. And then it's also got a momentum or velocity. How fast is it moving? Here's where it gets funny. At the quantum level, the more you attempt to determine where that exact position of that electron is, the more fuzzy becomes your measurement of that electron as far as its velocity goes. This is because the left brain can't do two things at once. So if you go to measure the momentum or velocity of the particle, you will progressively lose um, definitive ability to measure its position in, in space. When you do this simultaneously, like I just showed you, what happens is you're collapsing this into essentially a non-particle state called a wave state, and hence people feel the wave, or we say collapse the wave, and in that point, when you've let go of the need for it to be in that pattern, it can, outside of your conscious awareness, reconfigure into a new outcome. And since all of you, that's your physical, emotional, mental, all of you is made of this indeterminate stuff, doesn't really exist, consciousness is what drives this as the observer. Therefore, when you transcend the way you're measuring your reality, you, you adopt a little game like we just had, training wheels, it gives you a method to scientifically observe or determine that changes occur when you drop out of your left linear mindset. Over a very short period of time, this becomes a very natural state. We have participants that do this with absolutely everything. Um, I would be one of them. <laughs> Which actually is something I wanted to ask you about, doing this with absolutely everything. Do you find mm -hmm. things in your life that are just sort of stuck things? Oh, absolutely. Just about everything. I mean, stuck aspects of your business or stuck aspects of relationships. And you do some version of this, you know, dropping into the zero point field. Miracles are going to happen, but actually mm -hmm. things still just kind of suck. They can. Uh, what I've noticed by doing this, you really can't pretend to release your lock upon the need for it to change. You really actually have to do it. And what I found when this happens, for instance, I'll give you some examples. Um, I've got a sixth lumbar. I've got an extra vertebrae. Uh, I was also injured pretty badly back in naturopathic school to the point where I was nearly paralyzed uh, in my spine 
for about six months, even though I still went to work and went to school. Um, I have had constant pain there ever since I was about 11, and I'm going to be 58 in in two weeks. Um, I have an inguinal hernia. (laughs) You know, I wear glasses. Um, I dye my hair. Uh, you don't have to tell me everything, Richard. Yeah, no, but you I'm just not everything. Examples yeah, no, I'm, just, I'm joking no, with you. No, I'm, I'm going to leave out so, the things you don't right, need okay. to know. Yeah, okay. There's plenty, believe me. But my point is this. I have changed those things by not changing them. I still have some of the things that I have. I still need glasses, so on, but I'm human. I don't care. What I care about is the amazing life that I have. The amazing, and I'm not talking about how much money I have or how happy I am or or where I am in life. I'm talking about the very experience of life as a moment-to-moment thing has been transformed by this in such a way that I still can't believe it. Every time I get on stage, Melissa and I get on stage, we still, some part of us, cannot conceive or believe what always happens. And these miracles, when they happen, and they do, uh, are so far outside of our expectation set, it literally transcends you. You transcend your sense of self just by being in the presence of them. So that's what I would say. I mean, my life has been through some serious challenges in the last few years and still is going through a few. But I am still full of joy when I step on that stage because what we're sharing is so undefinable yet so real, so magical yet so present, that it is a great and deep abiding honor to be its servant. Okay, now we've mentioned the word miracles a couple times, and I did mm-hmm. want you to enumerate for me. Maybe just pick two miracles that you've seen I'll happen. I'll pick a ridiculous one. Okay. I'll pick a ridiculous one that'll knock your socks off. I still am shaking my head. I did not do this, or, you know, the field did it. That's what we tell people. We don't do anything. The field is what is doing. Uh, in the Bible, it says, uh, the Father worketh, uh, and I worketh hitherto. I think the Father is this field. And I think when you get to your heart, you're getting to that point of your real awareness, and that is one with the Father or one with that field. So here's the example that I want to give. It's ridiculous. Um, we were in a seminar somewhere. I don't know where. And I had a gentleman who was there with his wife. His wife was a, um, she was a practitioner, not of matrix energetics, but she was clairvoyant. She could see energy. She'd been working with healing her whole life. Well, her husband was none of that. Her husband was a auto mechanic. He was a foreign car specialist auto mechanic. He did not have any belief in anything I was saying. He had no reference for anything that was happening. He was not experiencing anything for himself. And in fact, he was pretty much sitting with his arms crossed the whole day and tolerating me because he loves his wife. So the next day, and I thought, and I got to know him. His name was Ray Hendricks, which is what a great name for somebody that loves the 60s and Jimi Hendrix. Ray Hendricks. So the next day, there's Ray. And we get up, and Melissa and I are doing question and answers. We, have, we will do this on Sundays and Mondays. So we're starting the session, and before the mic can even be passed around for someone to ask us a question, Ray is jumping out of his chair. Now, he's a little guy, and he is so animated. He's like, Richard, Richard, I've got to talk to you. I said, yes, Ray, yes, please, enlighten us. What's going on? He said, Richard, something happened yesterday. I just... I don't understand it, and I just, I just have to talk about it. So here's what happened. He was outside at the end of the seminar. We'd gone to the two-point. We talked about the idea of time travel. He's outside smoking a cigarette and just kind of staying away from all the new-age freaks, and um, all of a sudden the phone rings, his cell phone. He picks it up. It's his best friend, who he hasn't seen in over four years. His best friend is in the hospital with a brain tumor. Um, It's moved from his lungs, there's that smoking thing, into his brain, and he's got cannonball lesions, which are quite metastatic and serious, in his brain, and he's going to die. And so he tells his friend, you know, I just wanted to call you and tell you I miss you and tell you what's going on, and I'm 
Sorry, I may not be around that much longer. Well, this made Ray very sad. He looked around surreptitiously. No one was there. And so he held out his hand. He was holding his cell phone. He held out his hand in the air and formed kind of like a ruler. And he thought to himself, while looking guiltily around, four years ago, he was perfectly healthy. And that's all he did. He didn't believe it would work. He didn't have any reason to expect anything. This is the key. And so then, about three hours later, apparently, his friend called him back. He said, Ray, uh, something happened. I feel so much better. I got out of bed, pulled my IVs out. I yelled and raised hell and got a doctor, and they did another um, CAT scan on my brain. The tumor's completely gone. This was hours later. He said, I feel great. All my energy's back. I'm not going to stay here. I'm checking out. They're going crazy, but I'm leaving. And then Ray used an expletive, and he goes, Richard, what the blank happened there? (laughs) And I told Ray, I said, look, Ray, I don't know, but obviously you entered the state we've been talking about and connected because you didn't need to and didn't believe you could. Therefore, you were neutral. And so that was good, and he was a whole different man there. But here's the big miracle. Here's the really big one, I think. In, uh, in our seminar, we found that we can teach people how to, quote, become clairvoyant by teaching them how to play like children, how to learn to trust the images that their right brain gives them, and how to expand upon those and follow them in an open-ended process to learn. And so Ray actually participated in that exercise. Melissa and I went upstairs for lunch. I came back down, or actually it was a break, and I came back down on this break, and Ray, this very skeptical, very curmudgeon-y sort of fellow, he runs up to me. He's got his hands open. He goes, Richard, Richard, I've been looking everywhere for you. Here's a pink dolphin, and he says he's yours, and he needs to talk to you, and he handed this thing to me. That's a miracle. <laughs> That's almost a bigger miracle than the brain tumor, because his life was completely different. He was crying at the end of it. He was leaping up and down with joy. It was ridiculous. And that stuff happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say that about the pink dolphin, because, of course, you started our conversation. I was asking you about what happened back in 1996, and you said, you know, Superman appeared. And, of course, there's something kind of ridiculous about this. Right this whole series of discoveries began with the vision of Superman. Right. What do you make of that? I think that Superman was real. (laughs) And I think that I saw something that was really there. And you could call it a guide or you could call it an expression of my unconscious as forming an archetype, as a holographic reference for x-ray vision and healing. Uh, That's what I think it really was. But it doesn't matter. The real is the real, and what you experience, how you perceive it, is just as real as anything else anyone else perceives. So his pink dolphin, when he found that, that was a that was a big thing for him, and uh, and I could see what he handed me as well, and it was a little pink dolphin. Um, but again, you have to suspend the rules and become like a child. You can't pretend to be a child. You have to become like a child to get into the state. But once you do. There is a whole inner world waiting for you that is beyond comprehension. I still can't comprehend it, honestly. I still don't understand it. I don't know why it happens around me, through me, why I've been given the grace to teach others how to access this, and it still makes no sense, even though there's a lot of science behind it. Um, We have a... uh, uh, he was actually there, Claude Swanson. He's a PhD. He has a he has a uh, physics degree from MIT and a physics degree from um, Princeton. And he talks quite a bit about me and Matrix Energetics in his new book, um, Life Force: The Scientific Basis. And he talks a lot about torsion fields, which is what he thinks the actual expectation of uh, the actual explanation for Matrix Energetics is, which I agree with him. So. It's a funny, weird world, I tell you. Well, and I have to say, Richard, that this is now the second chance I've had to interact with you. The first was when you came to Sounds True and you were doing some video recording here. And both times it's like a cosmic curveball. And I have to say, you deliver a really 
fastly moving, beautiful cosmic curveball. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure because you know what? Here's the thing. I have nothing to say and nothing in my mind unless someone elicits it. And it is your desire to elicit that and to have that experience that creates it. Very good. I've been speaking with Richard Bartlett. Richard Bartlett has created with Sounds True a very interesting and powerful home study course. It's called The Matrix Energetics Experience, and it includes a DVD of Matrix Energetics in action with some seminar footage. It also includes an 87-page workbook, six audio sessions, and 41 cards that give you details on the properties of 21 fundamental frequencies, along with inspiration cards, a complete multimedia home study course on the Matrix Energetics experience. Richard, again, thanks for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tammy. It was a great pleasure. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. One journey.